I told a story about a neighbor of my grandparents that I believed God wanted me to witness to one day, and I didn't. And then I tried it another time, and it was kind of a disastrous because I did it more out of the guilt of not having done it than out of caring for this person. And he died this week. And it makes me sick to my stomach, and it makes me sad. And all the he might have accepted Jesus at the end of his life speeches aren't going to do anything to remove my guilt and my sorrow that a man might be in hell because I didn't do my job. Uh, We're doing this sermon series on witnessing, not because we're supposed to, but because we need to. And I hope that as we've gone through this series that uh, you've at least considered that maybe you should talk to somebody about Jesus. And I believe that we need to use every technique that we've seen in this series to lead every person on this planet to Jesus. And we've talked about how sometimes we just need to proclaim Jesus to people. We just need to say, this is the gospel story. Take it or leave it, this is what the Bible tells us. And sometimes we need to serve people and we need to be a a church, a religion of service. We always have been where we serve people so that they might ask why, and we might say, well, Jesus came to be a servant, and he died for me. And uh, we need to use prophecy, again, as we used it in this series, not telling the future necessarily, although that's cool, uh, but telling people God's perspective on things. And we need to be ready to say, look, God doesn't think like this world tells us we ought to think. It's different, and we all need a Savior, and, and you need Jesus because this is what God thinks about what's going on. And, and we talked about power encounters, a corny name, I know, but uh, just how sometimes God puts people right in front of us, and we just need to be ready to have a conversation with those people, and, and those people may very well be looking for a Savior and thinking about Christianity. We need to be ready to say, let me explain to you what you are wondering about. Let me, let me show you what I know about Jesus and the gospel and the Savior uh, that we serve, that we love. And then last week we talked about the power of invitation and uh, specifically we talked about inviting people to church and how just bringing people to hear the gospel message can be a valuable experience in, in leading them to Jesus. And I just will tell you, We're having this fall kickoff coming up in part so that we can have fun as a church, but it's in large part so that as the fall season of life kind of starts back up and people become more interested in going to church, that you'll invite somebody to play kickball with us and say, hey, just come to church, wear whatever clothes you want to because we're going to play kickball and eat hot dogs afterwards. Invite somebody. We need everybody to hear about Jesus. Invite somebody. But here's the reason that you won't do these things. Here's the reason that you will give for not being a witness. You ready for it? may not be the real reason, but this is the one you'll give. What if I don't have the answer to the questions that people ask me about Jesus? 
I mean, in all of them, right? Like, what if I proclaim Jesus and they say, well, that's okay, but what about this, this, and this? I may not have the answer. And, and what if, like, I serve somebody and they say, well, tell me about this Jesus person. And I'm like, yeah, well, I, here's kind of the idea, but I don't know all the details. The reason that it seems most of us give for not being a witness is that we won't have the answers. Now, the first thing I want to say about that before we look at our story in Acts today is that most people don't care about you having the answers or not. The reality is most people don't care about logic or answers or reason in our society today at all. Matt, my brother-in-law right here, I've told this in sermons before, but he has said to a couple people who have questions about Christianity, if I answer all of your questions, will you then become a Christian? And both times he said this to them, they've said, probably not. And he said, well, that saves me some time or something like that. And he goes on with his business. And the reality is that most people, most people cannot be reasoned into Christianity. Most people don't want to be reasoned into Christianity. Most people in our society today don't even care about reason and logic that much at all. There is a reason that we have stopped saying, I believe, and we simply say, I feel all the time. I feel like that's true because logic and reason have taken a backseat to feelings. But there are some people who still ask logical questions, and there are some people, some people you know, that aren't Christians because they don't think it makes sense, logical sense, to be a Christian. And today, what I want to talk about is how your reason could be the reason that somebody becomes a Christian, especially somebody that is driven by logic. Now, there's examples, and I'll give a couple later in, in this sermon, but uh, C.S. Lewis is one of the great examples. Early in his life, he said, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof of any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. And then 15 years later, he writes a letter to a guy, and he says, Christianity is God expressing himself through what we, are, through what we call real things. Namely, the actual incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. A big reason for C.S. Lewis's change of heart was simply that he looked at the facts of Christianity deeper than he ever had, and he decided that makes sense. And you may have people in your life who are like that. I just need an explanation. And then I'll consider becoming a Christian. But you say, I don't know enough, right? I mean, they need an explanation, but I'm not the guy because I don't know uh, enough. And today we're going to look at this story, the story of Paul who knew a lot. But the simplicity of the way he approaches being a witness in the midst of a group of people who are very logic driven, and we'll talk about that in a minute is something that we can duplicate to some degree. And if you have that person in your life, or all the people that you're scared of witnessing to because you might not have the answer, I think that what Paul does in this passage is something that we can copy, and at least we can start to show people the logic and the reason behind the Christian faith that we who are Christians possess. 
And you may get to the end of what Paul does here and have to go, okay, well, I don't know the answer to that extra question that you asked me, but I can find a book or I can ask somebody and get back to you on it. And so what we'll look at here is a kicking off point. It's kind of a way of starting. And I think, I hope, I believe that if we'll take it seriously, then maybe it will alleviate some of the fear about having to explain everything, it'll show us that we can at least offer some level of reason when it comes to the things of Jesus. And the story starts in Acts 17, 16 through 17, and it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, let me pause right there, Paul's been kicked out of one city, he went to another city, and in that city, the people that kicked him out of the first city came and started a little bit of a, a hubbub because he was preaching Jesus there. And so he leaves there, and they stick him in Athens, and they say, wait until we come back. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. I find it almost hilarious that Paul is going away on vacation, just waiting for his friends. And he looks around, sees idols and goes, oh man, I better go do something about this. He could not get away from being a witness because he had encountered the risen Christ. And I think we could learn from that. But what's fascinating here is that what he does is he reasons with people and it translates a Greek word that doesn't just mean preach as oftentimes it's described in the Bible about the disciples or the apostles. They preach the gospel to people. But here he reasons with them and it means like to speak to and fro. That is to say alternately to converse with, hence discuss, dispute, or to think different things with oneself, to mingle with thought, to ponder, revolve in mind, or to converse, discourse with one, argue, discuss. You don't need to remember any of that, but you can see kind of the language, what is described. It means that Paul is going out, doing a little debating, having a little argument, sitting around and talking with people and expressing ideas. He's not just coming to them and saying, the Bible says Jesus died and rose again. You need to accept him. And then saying, goodbye, I did my job. Paul is taking it a step further He's going to the synagogue where those are people who, you know, are, are, are they kind of, they like God, they believe in the God of Judaism and Christianity, but they don't know Jesus yet. So he's doing it there, but he's also going out into the marketplaces, which would have been filled with people who were as far from God as you could possibly imagine and may not have ever heard anything about Jesus. And he's conjuring up conversation where he and the person who doesn't love Jesus, who's not a Christian, who hasn't encountered a risen Christ, is disagreeing with him, and he's trying to show him why they are wrong. What's fascinating is that Paul is driven this way. His education, his philosophical and rhetorical skills, his brain all seems to just kind of work towards being an apologist, and that's a word for being a defender of the faith. And not all of us will be like Paul. In fact, if you looked at the Bible as a whole, it's really interesting because uh, that word reasoned is used 13 times, and 10 of them are about Paul. You don't see like Peter, fisherman guy, going out and reasoning with people. He just kind of preaches and relies on the Holy Spirit. But Paul uses this gift. In Acts 19.8, it says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke 
spoke boldly there for three months, and this is how it translates it, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. And in Mark 9, 34, one of the times it's not used of Paul, you can see kind of how this word is, is meant. It says that this is two disciples it's talking about, but they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. So Paul goes out into the marketplaces in Athens, a place where they would have known very little about Jesus, and he argues with them, trying to convince them that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And the story continues by saying a group of Ep- Epicurean and Stoic philosophers begin to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know this new teaching May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And then this parenthetical statement by Luke, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul's in Athens. You've probably heard of Athens, big deal in ancient Greece, right? And he encounters these philosophers Epicurus believed what he called pleasure was amongst the greatest goods, but the way to gain such pleasure was to live modestly, to gain knowledge of the workings of the world, and to limit one's desires. And the Stoics taught that destructive emotions resulted from errors in judgment of the active relationship between cosmic determinism and human freedom, and the belief that there, it is virtuous to maintain a will that is in accord with nature. If all that meant nothing to you, then you get the reason that I read it. These people are philosophical, you know? I mean, they're thinking about things we don't think of. When we think of pleasure, we think of pleasure. They thought of something else that we wouldn't even call pleasure. And he encounters these guys who are probably in Athens because they want to study more this philosophical idea that they subscribe to. And they don't like what Paul's saying. It doesn't come through in English, but when they say, what is this babbler trying to say? I guess from my reading, it was kind of like saying he was a poser. You remember that term kind of from the 90s? Um, Like a poser was somebody who, you know, dressed like they were kind of thuggish, but they weren't actually. And I I know that doesn't sound like it applies, but, but the... Greek thinking people, especially in Athens, they use this term babbler for somebody who was like a poser of being a philosopher. And the idea was that they could say like cute little nice snippets of information, but philosophically as a whole, they just weren't that deep. And so when they say, who's this babbler? What's he saying? They're saying like, this guy says some things that sound cool, but he's not really one of us. And when they say that he's advocating foreign gods, they're basically accusing him of doing something that was illegal. You had to get permission in Athens to actually introduce a new God in the city. And Paul, it doesn't tell us, has done that. And so they bring him in front of this group called the Areopagus, which was a ruling group. In fact, it was the earliest uh, aristocratic judging council. And they started as a group of advisors to the king in ancient Greece. And it's an interesting group of people because 
they took their jobs very, very seriously. It was made up of chief magistrates and those uh, who were noble by birth. And it was one of the highest courts in the land. And one of their main jobs was uh, ruling over trials about murder. But what makes them so fascinating is not that they were just a court, uh, but that they were a court that took their so- jobs so seriously that they didn't take kindly to flattery, and we'll see that in Paul's speech, that he doesn't flatter them the way that he flatters other people. In fact, they, they took offense. If you came in and said, oh, mighty judge people, we're so honored to be able to present this case in front of you today, it would make them mad because they took truth so seriously that they didn't want any of your flattery getting involved in their decision-making. Isn't that fascinating? Because we... You know, we're used to, even in the United States today, people taking very kindly to flattery in the courtroom or anywhere else when it comes to their decisions. Now, think of it. Paul is in the middle of a city that Luke tells us is full of people who just sit around talking about the greatest ideas. In fact, Athens is not a big, big city at this point. It's not what it was in ancient Greece anymore. And so like a lot of people who are coming there are coming there because it's a city where you can just sit around and talk about things. You can be philosophical and, and you, it's like a college town, you know, where nothing has to be real. You just think all the time. And the reason that the city was like this is because it was home of You know, a guy named Plato, you may have heard of him, and a guy named Socrates, and another guy named Aristotle moved there when he was 17. And so forever, it had been a place where people went to discuss ideas. And this is the city Paul's in, surrounded by philosophers, and now put in front of a court who is completely driven by trying to find the truth, void of any emotion, Void of any flattery, they want to know what is reasonable. So for Paul to come in there and saying, say something like, I know Jesus is real because I felt him move in my spirit. <laughs> you're out. You know, you're gone. That doesn't work here, pal. For Paul to say, hey, you know what, guys? I love Jesus, Jesus loves you. Let me help you move later, you know? That's not gonna work in this court right here. This is not a power encounter. These people have not come in there going, you know, I'm really in need of a savior. Can you tell me something about that? Not going to work. The only thing that's going to work is for Paul to present some reasonable evidence of the gospel. And this is what Paul does. It says that Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Told you they didn't like flattery. You read other of Paul's speeches in the book of Acts, and he's like, most honorable Festus. It is such an honor to be able to present my case to you today. Here he says, hey, you guys are ignorant of something. I'm going to explain it to you. And what I find fascinating about this 
is that in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, the same Paul says this, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence of human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. But here in Athens, with a group full of intellectuals, Paul gives a speech that is carefully crafted, that uses several oratory and rhetorical styles and skills, different linguistic tools, and he presents a short but good case. In fact, it's short, but it's the longest recorded sermon of Paul in the Bible. And I say all that to say, you have to know your audience. Most people in our societies today, in America today, do not care much about logic, but some do. And when you approach those people, you need to take seriously this model that I think Paul gives us that helps our reason maybe become the reason that somebody accepts Jesus as their savior. Ben Witherington III, who's a great author, if you ever need to buy a commentary, just start with his. He says, it is hard to doubt that Luke sees this speech in Acts 17 as something of a model for how to approach educated pagan Greeks. And I would say that Luke would see it as a model for how to, to approach educated American people. And let me just give you some of the main kind of points, some of the main techniques that Paul uses because I think that they're really helpful and they don't require you to be a person who has a theological degree or who would call themselves an apologist or even for that matter, who is super smart. And the first thing that Paul does, you might want to write this down, is that Paul begins his address by using an agreed upon question. You have a God that you worship and you don't know who it is. This is a question that you have, not a question I want you to have, it's a question that you Athenians actually have. I'm sure they wish they knew who that God was. They're worshiping it for crying out loud. And Paul begins with an agreed upon question. And I believe that when we come to somebody who just needs some explanation about Christianity, it's a great place to start if we can find an agreed upon question. Again, one more time. It doesn't mean the question that we want them to answer. It doesn't mean we go, here's a question. Who's the savior that you need? That's not what Paul does here. He begins with an agreed upon question. Let me just give you some examples. Like for some, this is an agreed upon question. Is there a God? That might be a great starting point. For some, they've made up their mind. It won't be a great starting point for them. Coming to an atheist and saying, is there a God? No. They're just going to say no. And you'll go, well, yes, there is. And then it turns into the argument that you were scared of in the first place. But for some, it's it's a real question. Is there a God out there? Is there a God? You might look at your friend and go, hey, I know you're wondering if there's a God. That's a starting point. 
That's a conversation that doesn't get shut down right away. That's a conversation, in fact, that continues and gets really interesting and allows you to reason like Paul did. Or how about this one? And you may not word it like this, but this is at the heart of a lot of conversations, right? Does life have a point? Is there any real meaning to this whole thing? Or how about this one? Where do people go when they die? That question comes up in people's hearts and minds, even if they don't express it, after every single one of their loved ones dies. Why does evil exist? Everybody wants to know why bad things continue to happen, even as man seems to become more and more reformed and we understand psychology more, yet still bad things happen all the time. It seems that every week we pray for uh, another group who has been shot in our country and people want to know why. What about this? What is morally right and good? This comes up not by people asking that question, but when we think about politics, for example, and, and a lot of us, I think, dread election season, but at the heart of many of those political questions is really the question, what is right and good? And what's bad? And if you start with that question, then you start a conversation that can become valuable. Paul continues. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. The next thing that Paul does is he points out a flaw in their thinking. He does it in a nice way. He doesn't say, you people are dumb. He simply points out a flaw in the way that they think about the question that he has already put in front of them. You have an unknown God. I believe that God created all of us. Sounds like something that's not a stretch for them in this speech. They go, okay, we can give you that some God created us. And then Paul says, if God created us, then why would he live in something that we have created? Why would he need us to bring him sacrifices so that he could eat something they believed? It's a great question. There's a flaw in that thinking, right? Yeah, we do believe that God created us, and maybe the creator God is that unknown God, and if that unknown God did create us, it doesn't make sense that we would need to create something for him to live in. Hmm. And this isn't that hard of a technique. In fact, it's pretty easy. It's easy to see the flaws in the thinking of our world, even if we can't perfectly articulate why we believe differently. Now, you may go, I don't know any of the flaws in, in how non-Christians think about God or, or how non-Christians think about Jesus or the Bible or all of those things. And, and I would just say, maybe read a book, you know? I mean, maybe instead of Harry Potter, you could read 
something that may have an impact on how you could communicate the gospel to somebody else. Uh, and I have three suggestions, and, and they're all pretty good suggestions. Uh, and they're going to go from simpler to harder. Ready? Uh, the first would be more than a carpenter. Brilliant, small, Every Christian should read more than a carpenter. It should be required. It should say, like, after you become a Christian, you should get baptized, and then you should read more than a carpenter. These are the rights of the, of the church. Uh, you should read mere Christianity. Every other apologetic book that's written after C.S. Lewis wrote mere Christianity basically steals what C.S. Lewis wrote in mere Christianity and tries to put it in their own sentences. Uh, all of them, pretty much, uh, that get to consumers like me should be... Uh, uh, marked down for plagiarism because they all come from mere Christianity. And the last one is Christian Apologetics by Norman Geisler. And that's a little bit uh, thicker of a read, but it's not terrible. It's, it's like this big, not like this big as some apologetics books are. Uh, but these books point out in some ways, flaws in, in non-Christian thinking, and they help you begin to understand how you might defend the beliefs that you have. Now, here's the other thing that Paul does. He says, there's a flaw in your thinking, but he also does this other really important thing, and that is that he uses the Bible, Scripture, without quoting the Bible and Scripture. Throughout this series, we've said that if you're going to be a good witness, then you must have at least some understanding of what the Bible says about Christianity. I've recommended that you learn and understand the key points of Christianity. I've also said that maybe you could memorize a verse or two when it comes to being able to witness, you know, like John 3, 16, but there's some others like Romans 10 and things like that, that you should just have some verses that you memorize. But when you're talking to somebody who needs to know Jesus and they're logic driven, I wouldn't say Romans 6.23 says, because you know what happens? They go, I don't believe in the Bible. And they may agree with many things that are in the Bible, but once they know it's from the Bible, you know this already, right? Then all of a sudden, the guards go up, the defense mechanisms kick in, and they shut down. Ben Witherington III, again, I'm going to quote him one more time later, says, from a rhetorical point of view, the function of the quotation is to cite an authority recognized by one's audience to support one's point. It would have done Paul no good to simply quote the scripture. A book that the audience did not know and one that had no authority in the minds of the hearers. So instead of saying Romans 6.23 says, you just say something like, you know, it's pretty clear that all people do terrible things. And I just wonder what that means for us and forgiveness. That's better, right? It's better not because the words are better, but because it keeps the defense mechanism down. And it's so fascinating that Paul, who knew the scripture very well, beyond what we'll ever know the scripture most likely because of the way that he had been educated uh, growing up as a Jewish person. I mean, he would have known the Bible in and out, the Old Testament. And he doesn't say, well, Leviticus 5.28 says, he just explains to them a biblical perspective on the agreed upon question that their answer had flaws with. Isn't that cool? It's pretty simple, right? I mean, Paul does a pretty simple thing. He's a really smart man doing a very simple thing that we can emulate. Here's our question. Here's where I see problems with your question. And 
while I won't tell you, this is how the Bible begins to answer that question. God doesn't live in houses made by human beings. In fact, God created the boundaries that human beings live within so that they might turn to him. Instead of quoting the Bible, he actually quotes their own sources twice. He says the two things, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's something that one of their philosophers said. And then he said this, we are his offspring. Something else one of their philosophers said. Paul doesn't quote the Bible, but he quotes something that they were familiar with, that they were connected to, that they would have liked anyway. And he does it to prove the biblical point that he has just made without telling them that it was in the Bible. Ben Witherington III, told you I'd quote him again, says, apologetics by means of defense and attack is being done using Greek thought to make monotheistic points. Can you use secular thought to make Christian points? I believe you all can. I wrote down some things. This was quick. This was like just really fast. I didn't Google search this. I wasn't trying to find like ways that we can use secular situations and arguments to support Christianity. I just thought like, you know, like you would do in a conversation. How can I prove what the Bible declares using agreed upon sources? And I thought of this like after September 11th, everybody prayed, right? And what if you could just say like, hey, you know, when bad things happen, people pray. Like 99% of people prayed. And that does suggest that there's a God or at least that 99% of people are completely delusional. That's a pretty good argument, right? We all agree everybody prayed. I didn't say, well, the Bible said or I have this vast great argument. It's just something that makes people think. How about this? Successful people struggle. We know that it's in pop culture, pop media all the time. People who have achieved everything that they set out to achieve, who have everything that the American dream says that they should have, continue to drink too much, to give into drugs, to fight depression. And it suggests that maybe there's a greater point to life than just having all the things we want. It's an agreed upon question. What's the point of life? There's a flaw in what, Americans think, well, it's to make money and be happy and all that because people who have done that aren't satisfied. So what is the real point? Or how about Harry Potter? Good and evil exist. Good and evil exist. A lot of people in our world today, especially in our country, want to say there is no such thing as good. There is no such thing as bad. It's just about what is good for you and bad for me. And those can be completely different standards. But you know, I haven't read all of Harry Potter, but I'm going to guess there's no sentence that says Harry Potter's the good guy. It's just implied, right? We know because of the virtues, because of the way the story's told, that Harry Potter is good and the snake man is bad. He has a name, but I'm not a fan of the series. Uh, but the snake guy is bad. It didn't need to be told to us. And so when we say something like, you know, to me it's obvious that there is good and there is bad. Something the Bible declares, right? But we don't quote it. You know, like Harry Potter, nobody ever said that Harry Potter was the good guy. You just know because you innately understand that some things are good and some things are bad, and he demonstrates those characteristics. 
These are good arguments. I can tell with your eyes that you're convinced. And these are simple things that take no degree, that take no apologetic ability, that can happen right as you're in the middle of a conversation with somebody who says, I have questions about Jesus. Begin with an agreed upon question. Point out the flaws and how people think about that question in our society. Show what the Bible says. And then use their own sources to support those ideas. And Paul continues, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul brings all the reason and the logic that he's used, just short, but he brings it all to a point, uh, and it's a point of decision. And that's where we want to stop, right? Like, yeah, we see good and bad exists. We can agree on that. Maybe now I talked you into that, but Paul doesn't stop. He says, look, what I'm explaining to you matters because Jesus came and he died and he rose again, and that is what you need to make a decision about. The point of decision will always hinge on Jesus' resurrection. Every logical person that you talk to that needs reason in order to make decisions, you know the type, will be honest enough to say that if Jesus rose again, then we must choose to declare him as the Lord of the earth or we must choose to reject him. But there is something magnificent about him if he really got out of a grave. And Paul doesn't just stop and say, well, good talk, everybody. I hoped I moved you a step closer. He says, here's the deal. Here's what it points to, that God doesn't live in a human structure. It points to the fact that God came and he died and he rose again. And that's what you will be judged upon. How you decide about that resurrection. And I want to point out that one of the reasons I'm a Christian not the main reason, because I'm not somebody who's driven like an Athenian. Athenian, uh, But one of the reasons I'm a Christian is because I believe there is incredible proof of the resurrection. And the proof is strong enough to me to say, like, I have to serve Jesus because he got out of a grave. And there's better evidence for Jesus getting out of the grave than almost everything that you believe about history that happened 2,000 plus years ago. And if you're not a Christian and you need some evidence, I would love to talk to you about that. But the resurrection, there's great proof for it. And it's the defining point of every, every apologetical argument. All of our reason must point to the fact that we believe Jesus got out of a grave and that people must make a decision about him Because of that. And I want to say that the goal of this speech was not to meet people in the middle. I think we get that backwards. It was to find common ground so that he could lead people all the way to the cross. Paul has this great model, right? Agreed upon question, point out the flaws, show what the Bible says defend the Bible's position with something that's agreed upon and then say, here's where it leads. If there is a God, then what do we believe about him? And here's what I believe. Jesus was God in human form and he died and he rose again. 
If there is more of a point to life, perhaps it's bringing glory to God. I believe that Jesus came and died and rose again so that we might glorify God. If there is good and evil, then what must be done about that evil? Well, I believe Jesus came and he died and he rose again to conquer that evil. What's very fascinating at the end of this section that I've just read is that the word that translates proof there is actually the word that most oftentimes is translated faith. It's like the same word for like have faith in Jesus. And oftentimes we believe that faith is completely void of evidence or reason. And while faith is believing something that you can't see, it doesn't mean that it is without evidence, that it is without logic, that it is without reason. And I believe that your reasoning could be the reason that somebody accepts Jesus. Now this ending is where the question for you comes in. Do you have the courage? Listen to what it says. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Three responses. You know that you'll get these three responses. The question is, does your fear of the first response outweigh the hope of the last response? Some people sneered. Isn't that what we're all scared of? And let's be honest, Paul's argument, if we sat down with an atheist today that was educated, he could poke holes in Paul's argument. I don't think they'd be good holes but he would have some logical explanation for why he didn't believe what Paul has stated in this section. And he may sneer at this argument. And that's what we fear. When we have an agreed upon question, we pull holes in it and we say what the Bible says and, and we defend that position and then we declare Jesus as Savior, some people go, <laughs> that's the best you can do? Well, let me tell you all the stuff I know. I'm an atheist. I must be smart. Let me tell you about all the reasons you're wrong. That's what we fear. And it happened to Paul. I can promise you this. If it happens to Paul, it's going to happen to you at some point if you're actually trying to defend the faith of Christianity. But some people wanted to know more. They had questions. And I think you fear this a little, but can't you just, the questions are good. Hey, we want to know more. I didn't understand that one thing you said. I'm not sure I agree with what you said there. You may be able to answer those questions or you may not. You say, well, I'll buy a book for you. And I will just point out that buying a book for somebody is not the starting point. Nobody's going to read your book when you show up with mere Christianity. Nobody's going to read it. You have to read it so that you can start the conversation. And then you can give a person the book when they have further questions, when they want to hear more. But the last response, some people believed. This is not the greatest argument for Christianity in the history of the world. And he's standing in front of some of the brightest people who have ever lived. The people that were inventing, creating the way that we have decided truth throughout the history of Western culture. And some of them, even a guy by name, 
believe in Jesus and become Christians. And I just ask, is being mocked or having somebody ask you more questions worth the chance to you that someone might believe? And I ask the question, are you willing to try to reason with somebody so that they might become a Christian, even if it means they might say, well, you're dumb. You don't know as much as you should. There's holes in that argument. And I hope the answer is yes, because people die and they go to hell. Lee Strobel, he wrote a book called The Case for Christ, and then he followed that up after it made a lot of money with The Case for Faith and The Case for Easter. Uh, He was a religious skeptic. He was not a believer at all. And one day in 1979, uh, when he was 27 years old, his wife came up to him, and from hearing him tell the story, it was out of nowhere, and said, I have become a Christian. And here's what he said. I rolled my eyes and braced for the worst, feeling like the victim of a bait-and-switch scam. I had married one Leslie, the fun Leslie, the carefree Leslie, the risk-taking Leslie, and now I feared she was going to turn into some sort of repressed prude who would trade our upwardly mobile lifestyle for all-night prayer vigils and volunteer work in grimy soup kitchens. And at age 28, he set off on an investigation that lasted two years And then he became a Christian in 1981 because, he would tell you, the evidence supported the reality of Jesus being the true Savior of the world. Now, what's fascinating to me is that some of the people you know, they'll be impressed by you going to a soup kitchen. But this guy, who was the chief editor of the Chicago Tribune, I believe, when all this went down, he was a skeptic. I mean, he was a reporter. He, he just was a skeptic. And so he, the thought of him as he was successful and skeptical and all those things was, oh, no, she's going to serve. And you have people like that. They don't want to know about all the great things Christianity results in. They want to know whether Christianity is true. And I ask, are you willing to be out on a limb, maybe being made fun of, maybe not having the right answers so that you might be the reason that your reason might be the reason somebody gives their life to Jesus. I just want to say a couple of things. If you're not a Christian, I would love to have a conversation with you about why. If you're a logical person, and everybody thinks they're a logical person, and if that's really you, then I would love to sit down and just talk to you about why I think Christianity is the real true religion. And uh, when, we're, uh, when I'm done and we'll do uh, a communion and then at the end we have our offering baskets passed. And if you're just a skeptic, I would love to talk to you about the reasons that I uh, am firm in my belief in, in Jesus being the Savior of the world. And all you got to do is mark on one of those cards and drop it in a basket. Uh, and and I'll, I'll reach out to you. I'll email you. I'll call you. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And we can talk about why I think Jesus actually got out of the grave. But if you're a Christian already, then you have people in your life who are driven by intelligent things. They're scholars. They think they're scholars. They're academics. They, they like the debate. Don't run from the debate. Engage it. Start with an agreed upon question. Lovingly point out the flaws in Christian thinking and answers. Use scripture to teach a truth, but don't necessarily quote it. Connect the truth to a similar source and then bring the conversation to a point of decision. 
I wrote it down like this. Why are certain people evil? Certain things are evil, even if the world doesn't want to admit it. Evil entered the world when people rejected God's way. Every great movie shows that evil is real and it has to be dealt with. Jesus died and rose again so that it might be conquered. Somebody says, well, that's not that great of an argument. Well, I'd love to answer any questions that you have. It's that simple. Don't let fear of not having answers prevent you from witnessing because you can be the reason that somebody else chooses to accept Jesus. Your reason might be the reason that they give themselves to Christ. And so I hope that you have the courage to face the sneers and to face the questions so that some, maybe just a couple, might believe that Jesus came, died, rose again, and has offered them eternal life. People are dying. People need to hear the story. And we must be willing to witness, even if it means uh, that we have to use our reason. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you have given us... um, our brains. And I thank you even more that you have given us a reasonable faith. Um, That you have not disconnected evidence and faith altogether. And while, God, I would be the first to admit, and we all know that faith requires some leap where there is not perfect evidence, there is still great evidence that calls us to make that leap of faith, Lord. And, and I pray, God, for the people here and those who will listen online that aren't Christians because they don't think it's logical, I pray that they would investigate like Lee Strobel, like C.S. Lewis, like Josh McDowell, Lord, I pray that they would investigate. And I believe if they are intellectually honest, God, then they will come to a conclusion that the story of the Bible is real. And therefore, God, the gospel story, the good news of you is real. And God, I pray for those of us who are Christians that we would have the courage to engage these conversations. And I pray, like Paul, we would be bothered by all the idolatry that we see around us. Not idolatry of carved stone, God, but the idolatry of money and looks and fame and popularity, God, and career and all the other things that our our country so idolizes. And I ask God that we would engage those things and be willing to have honest, real, but hard conversations where ideas go back and forth. And I pray, God, that we, in those moments where we have conversations with unbelievers, would not be mad but we would do our best to show them that we have a reasonable faith. And I pray in those moments, God, that we would have the power of your Holy Spirit flowing in us, God, so that Paul's model or whatever you want us to say would come to our minds. And while we may not have perfect answers, God, we would have some answers. God, I want everybody to know you as their Savior. Give us the guts to do what needs to be done in all of our friends and family members and uh, 
neighbors and co-workers' lives so that they might spend eternity in heaven with us. Pray these things in your name. Amen.